0: If a revolution were to break out in the U.S., if and when it happens, like it has in so many other countries, what would need to be in place for that revolution to succeed? We need to build the kind of organization that can sink roots in the working class and systematically put forward a revolutionary program for a mass party of the working class to come to power, to form a workers' government, to nationalize the key industries under workers' control in order to plan the economy, and to transform life on this planet for billions of people. America will never be a socialist country. Attitudes are changing towards socialism. We believe the only solution is the establishment of a worker's government on a socialist program. Program. for joining us. My name is Antonio Ballmer. I am an editor at Socialist Revolution, and we are once again live from the heart of this global pandemic here in New York City. And in the midst of this global meltdown of the capitalist system, Socialist Revolution is bringing you these weekly live streams to look at how this pandemic and this crisis is shaping the class struggle in the U.S. and around the world, and above all, how it's impacting consciousness of millions of people. In tonight's episode, we're going to look at an aspect of that changing consciousness, a topic that a few weeks ago you would not have expected to see in all the headlines of the major media outlets across the country, and that is the topic of nationalization. The recent buzz around this term is really a significant development in the context of the U.S. for this to become part of the mainstream political dialogue. If you just consider that a month ago, the ruling class, the markets, the media were far more worried about the rise of Bernie Sanders than they were about the spread of this virus. In fact, the CNN hosts even compared the two. Can either coronavirus or Bernie Sanders be stopped? I'm Michael Smerconish in Philadelphia. An already unpredictable presidential campaign now includes the spread of a deadly virus. You can see that they were worried about the rise of a self-described democratic socialist. But Sanders wasn't calling for nationalization. I mean, let's be clear, his call for Medicare for All, it's true, it would eliminate the insurance sector, which is a parasitic middleman, but it wouldn't nationalize healthcare. And his Green New Deal also doesn't nationalize any companies. In fact, if you consider that all the recent self-described socialist candidates who have run for office in recent years, none of their programs have really talked about nationalization, planning the economy, these basic elements that for us are the heart of a socialist program, Now everything's changing. You see the New York state governor, Andrew Cuomo, calling for nationalizing the medical supply chain. In New York City, in the words of the mayor, Bill de Blasio, he says, this is a case for nationalization. How about ventilators? Where is the federal government making sure that our hospitals have the ventilators we're going to need? Where's the federal government when it comes to surgical masks? getting them distributed where they need. This is a case for a nationalization, literally, a nationalization of crucial factories and industries that could produce the medical supplies to... A literal nationalization of factories and industries that can produce the medical supplies that we need. These statements have received support from all kinds of senators. 57 different members of Congress have urged Trump to use the Defense Production Act in the case of Lee Carter in Virginia, he's a, a member of Democratic Socialists of America. He has really taken up the call and he has actually expanded it beyond the question of the medical supply sector, issuing a string of tweets in the last couple of weeks calling for public ownership of everything from airlines to hospitals to, in fact, any vital industry that asks for a bailout. But the most interesting thing is that this goes far beyond these modest demands from progressive lawmakers and and some not so progressive lawmakers. If you look at what people are calling for in in society, in the working class, you see healthcare workers, doctors on Twitter calling for nationalizing the ventilator supply, nationalizing all hospitals, nationalizing pharmaceutical companies. You have this anti-malarial chloroquine, a candidate for the vaccine, spiking their prices by 98%. Yes, people respond to that and say we should nationalize these companies, that makes no sense. We are supposed to stay at home, but we have a housing crisis. Nationalize all hotels. Nationalize all vacant housing. Nationalize the utility companies, the energy sector. This is what people are calling for online in the past couple weeks. The airlines are asking for bailouts. So people respond, let's nationalize the airlines. Let's nationalize the major banks, the credit card companies. Everyone's relying on internet. We're using it right now why don't we nationalize the whole broadband infrastructure and guarantee high-speed internet for everybody? People are calling for nationalizing Amazon, Netflix, Disney Plus, Hulu. And you see that a lot of people, they're coming to these conclusions and they're even surprising themselves with the pace of this change. They're saying, I never thought I'd say this, but I agree, I guess I'm a radical socialist. I, I agree, we need to nationalize that, we need to take it over. What this shows is that people are rethinking the system and every aspect of of the social order is coming into question. And it's really a part of a broader process, a shift in consciousness that goes back before the outbreak of COVID-19, before the outbreak of this pandemic. It's actually a continuation of something we've seen over the last half a decade. We've seen this remarkable shift in favor of socialism, a widespread rejection of capitalism, But now it's being accelerated at an incredible pace under the impact of events. And you talk about big events that are shaping the consciousness of millions. In the last two weeks alone, 10 million people have lost their jobs in the U.S. In New York City, they're talking about 30% of households where someone has lost a job. They've lost a source of income. People are naturally drawing parallels with the Great Recession, the 2008 crisis. The truth is we've already surpassed that by far. The Federal Reserve has estimated that unemployment is going to reach 32%. They're projecting 47 million workers in this country losing their jobs. But there's a fundamental difference between today and 2008. And that difference is that 12 years ago, people were taken completely by surprise. The strategists of the system certainly were blindsided. The working class was paralyzed. People hadn't lived through anything like this since the Great Depression. I mean, 70 years had gone by before the system had had been through something like that. This time you have a very special new element in the equation, which is the presence of an enormous layer of society, an entire generation whose outlook on capitalism, on the system was shaped by the last crisis and not just by the memory of it, but by the entire world that it left behind in its aftermath. For most of the working class, there was no recovery. For the eight million people who were laid off in 2008, over the course of the last crisis, you know, a decade later, having 80% of workers living paycheck to paycheck, where was the recovery for them? For the 11 million uh, Americans who's, who were foreclosed, who lost their houses in the, in the last crisis, where's the, the resolution of the housing crisis, the housing question in the US? When you have that same number, 11 million, in inadequate housing conditions, basically living without a home of their own, whether they're in shelters, doubled or tripled up in apartments with multiple families. That's 11 million people who live in those kinds of situations. The same number spend over half of their income on rent. And you have half a million people living on the streets. You know, this is the, these are the conditions before the outbreak of this pandemic. You have also the burden on 45 million Americans of student debt, you have, the health crisis now is taking on a new meaning, but for over the course of the last decade, you've had tens of millions who were uninsured, whose you know, the overwhelming majority of personal bankruptcy is caused by medical expenses. So this was a world already characterized by crisis. Add the climate crisis to that, the fact that you have 100 companies that are responsible for 71% of global emissions there's really no surprise then that there's been this massive shift among the 2008 generation to reject capitalism and to even look for a revolutionary solution that goes beyond the impasse of this system. And over the last few years, we've seen one poll after another really showing this dramatic shift, this rising interest in socialism. The latest polls in recent years show that 43% of Americans view socialism favorably. That's a hundred million people, which is an astounding figure on its own. And you might say, what does socialism mean to all of them? It's true that they're not yet on board with a single program. They're not yet organized in one mass party. They're not a single unified force, but don't underestimate the discontent in society and the potential for this new emerging movement to evolve and to develop and to harden into a revolutionary movement particularly because the composition of the working class is changing. It's now full of this 2008 generation. And you look at these polls about the millennials, the way that uh, their their views, it's not just that most of them would support a socialist. 36% of millennials view communism and Marxism favorably. So you have this huge layer in society, which already makes up the largest generation in the US population. It's also the largest generation within the workforce already. There are 75 million millennials in the US. That's more than the entire population of countries like the UK, France, Italy. This tells you something about where the class struggle is headed in the US. And all of this is just the backdrop to the present crisis. All of the discontent that has accumulated over the past decade is now going to be intensified. It's going to be increased tenfold by this pandemic And by the inability of the capitalist system to respond to it and as marxists we've long been in the business of explaining that capitalism is exhausted historically it's it's exhausted its potential for moving humanity forward for having any kind of productive development and every major crisis that humanity is facing is a result of the very structure of society the fact that this society revolves around the enrichment of a small minority at the expense of everything else and everybody else, it's really brought us to an absurd situation in history where you have so much potential, so much productive capacity, such a high level of of technological development that could allow for such dramatic improvements in people's standard of living, and yet it's held back by the profit motive, by the narrow interests of the market, Rather than consciously harnessing all this potential in a rational way, in a democratic way, organizing all our activity around human needs. Humanity is governed by blind forces of the market. You know, we're really on autopilot and we're being driven into the ground, into a state of of barbarism. That's what we're living in today. It's endangering our very existence, our very chances of survival on this planet and it's preventing us from responding to this pandemic in the most effective way. We can't mobilize our productive forces. We have all this potential to retool the economy, to tackle the virus in a conscious, coordinated way, and instead we're paralyzed because we're beholden to the rules of private property, of profitability, and the needs of capital. Instead of a vast scientific collaboration on a global scale sharing all research, sharing all the information that's available, making sure that some team of scientists somewhere in the world, wherever they are, can find a cure, find a vaccine as soon as possible. Instead of that, we see competition between one company and another, between one country and another. And we see concern in the first place about which company is going to be able to profit from a vaccine, which country is going to get to tap into the massive sales that will come with finding a cure. It's really a a tragedy that boggles the mind for society to find itself so helpless in the face of this coming catastrophe that is already having a horrible toll in human life. By Trump's administration's own estimates, they're saying on the low end, we're gonna have a quarter of a million deaths in the US. And we can't avert it. We can't steer the ship onto a new course because of something so arbitrary as shareholder profits and capital accumulation. We need masks for healthcare workers, for the protection of everybody else as well. We need hospital beds, we need ventilators. Under capitalism, all of these things depend on businesses. So people are asking, how is it that the richest country and the largest city in the country, so unprepared, so ill-equipped? And it's because you have, like every other industry under capitalism, a sector, a healthcare sector, that is not organized around human needs. It's designed to make profits for its owners. Hospitals are businesses, and in order to cut costs, despite the growing population in the last half a century, they've been forced to eliminate half a million hospital beds since the 1970s. In New York alone, 16 hospitals have closed down since 2003. We've lost 20,000 hospital beds. Why? To make room for luxury condos. To use that real estate more profitably. That's just in one city. The same thing is happening across the country and has been happening for years. You look at Hanneman Hospital in Philadelphia. It closed down about six months ago also to to make room for luxury housing. The hospital is now sitting empty and you have 500 beds in that hospital but the owner, uh, the real estate developer based in LA, is holding that building hostage. He's holding the hospital hostage, demanding a lease of $1 million a month, which the city cannot pay. To quote the mayor of Philadelphia, we don't have the need to own it, he says, nor the resources to buy it. So we're done and we're moving on. Those are the words of the mayor of a city with 3000 cases of COVID-19, over 500 of them just since this morning. You have 500 beds, you have the facilities you need, you have a hospital there, but you can't use it. Those beds have to stay empty because a businessman in LA has a piece of paper that says that building belongs to him. And it's not just in the major cities. It's also, you know, in in the past decade, you've had 119 rural hospitals and clinics shut down across the country, which could be a life and death situation for people. The transmission won't be as, as high, as frequent as it is in the cities, in the rural parts of the country. But if you have to now drive 10, 20, 50 miles for your nearest hospital, that could be a life and death situation. So people can see this and they can see that it's an absurd contradiction. And that is essentially what representatives of this system have been forced themselves to admit now. You know, in March, Anthony Fauci, the head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, who's on the White House task force, this guy was talking to Congress at a congressional hearing talking about the lack of testing kits. And he said, this is a failure. This, he said the, the system, system is not really geared to what we need right now, what you are asking for. That is a failing. And a that, failing, it, yes. It, it is a failing. Let's stuff. admit it. The fact is the way the system was set up, the okay. idea of anybody getting it easily, the way people in other countries are doing it, we're not set up for that. We're not so set right, up for that. Should be. Yes. So that's a pretty clear condemnation of the system. When you have top public officials, basically acknowledging that you can't rely on the market to save lives and respond to this crisis. And that brings us back to the question of nationalization. Faced with the scale of this crisis in New York, the state governor, Andrew Cuomo, repeatedly is calling for the federal government to nationalize the medical supply chain, pointing out that instead of a nationally coordinated effort to make sure that hospitals have the supplies they desperately need, you have states literally competing against each other and meanwhile there's rampant price gouging. So face masks that if you step outside in New York City, you can see them littered all over on the sidewalks now. They normally cost 60 cents and they're going for $7, $8. The federal government had a stockpile of these, I I believe it ran out on Wednesday, of 11 million of these masks. Last week, uh, healthcare union in the Bay Area, SEIU, healthcare workers in Oakland, California, located a massive supply of 39 million desperately needed N95 surgical masks. What does it mean to locate 39 million masks? Do they find them in a closet? Do they find them in someone's trunk? You know, everyone's looking for these things. And then you have this union calling around and they find a distributor. They find a company that has had 39 million masks and is sitting on them. And is now willing to part with them. They're going to sell them, not at 50 cents, not at 60 cents, they're going to sell them at five dollars each. So you can do the math. It's largely in this context that we've seen this growing buzz around nationalization because people can look at this situation and say, well that doesn't make any sense to have society face with this impending catastrophe and all the businesses, all the companies are looking at it as a business opportunity. This is a situation where we are in a crowded movie theater that has just caught fire and everyone suddenly, all of their secondary concerns in the background, people need an exit and whoever can step up urgently and say, that is the exit. Everybody, let's go this way. We'll have the, the response of the entire crowd. You know, People are looking for a way out of this impasse. They're looking for revolutionary solutions. They're looking for a way out and for socialists, this means we need to be able to respond to this crisis and show a clear way forward show a way out of this burning building and put forward a program for transforming society and that's why we need clear ideas when a term like nationalization is being thrown around and it's used in a lot of different ways by the media by capitalist politicians who are trying to save the system by radicalizing workers who would rather overthrow the system and want something new uh, what does it mean for us when we call for nationalization. You know, as revolutionary socialists, what we're putting forward, what the international Marxist tendency is putting forward in 40 cities across the U.S. and we have workers on the front lines, in the medical field, in research labs, in essential industries of all kinds, on the picket lines as well of this growing strike wave. And also in in 40 countries around the world, The, the program that the Commons are putting forward is first of all a call for the working class to take control of society. The crucial role of workers is becoming clear to everyone. And yet workers should be making decisions based on human needs, not leaving decision-making to the bosses to make based on profit at the expense of workers' health and public health. We need to form a workers' government. We're not calling on Trump to nationalize industries. We need the working class to have a government of its own. And socialists across the country and around the world should systematically be making a case for the government to come to power, to nationalize all essential industries, beginning with the fortune 500 companies, which make up 75% of the economy, by the way. But in today's case, also with the the essential industries on the front lines, the hospitals, the pharmaceutical uh, companies, the research labs, they should no longer be run as businesses. And the same goes for the essential supply chain. Companies like Amazon, Walmart, energy and utility companies, they should all be nationalized. And by that we mean transferred into public ownership with no compensation to the capitalists and administered democratically under the control of the working class. Now, it goes without saying that this is not what Cuomo and all of these politicians are calling for. The 57 other House Democrats that have called for Trump to use the authority of the Defense Production Act to coordinate a supply of uh, essential medical equipment. What is the Defense Production Act? It's a piece of legislation from 1950, from the Korean War, not for nationalization. It doesn't take control of industry. All it does is allow the federal government to compel private companies to accept government contracts, to prioritize those contracts, and to deliver on time. And sometimes it involves giving them a lot of cash, giving them loans so they can increase production uh, to meet those orders. Rarely, there's also a, a rarely used provision, hasn't been used since the Cold War, that allows the government to also control the distribution of goods that a company produces. So all in all, really it's a very modest set of guidelines for regulating government contracts. And it's actually been used hundreds of thousands of times under Trump, and under every other administration, mostly by the Pentagon, because they use the language of the DPA, of this law, for all of their contracting with, uh, with private contractors, for their imperialist war aims, the production of drones, chemicals, weapons, lasers, body armor, basically any contract in the uh, Department of Defense and private sector uses language from the DPA. So this is what lawmakers are hoping the administration will use To compel private companies, to compel the private sector to respond to the medical needs of this pandemic. The DPA is is already a law. Trump has invoked it, which essentially means that he has threatened to use it. He hasn't actually used it, but he's mostly insisting that the private sector can handle this crisis with no government intervention. He has pushed back against pressure to activate the DPA, saying that we are not a country based on nationalizing our business. we're a country not based on nationalizing our business. Uh, uh, call a person over in Venezuela, ask them how did nationalization of their businesses work out? Not too well. Uh, the concept of nationalizing our business is not a good concept. But Of, of course, that doesn't rule uh, bailouts like the ones we saw in 2008. By some estimates, the total amount of public money that was spent in rescue packages, loans, guarantees, to bail out the finance sector and all these other major companies that came crashing down in 2008 was 12 trillion dollars over the course of the crisis. Some people in the media called these policies nationalization. The 2008 generation remembers clearly and knows that this was not really nationalization. This was a public rescue of the capitalists, a massive bailout at the expense of the working class and the youth. The government said at the time these companies are too big to fail and as we responded at the time yes we agree they're too big to fail we don't want another great depression they're also too big to remain in private hands and that is 10 times more so the case today than it was 12 years ago the trump administration is planning some massive bailouts they've talked about bailing out uh, the airline industry and and several others and it's not going to sit well with the working class to say the least You take a company like Boeing, they're asking for a bailout of $60 billion. This is the world's second largest private contractor with the US military, the same company that's been in the headlines for cutting corners on their inspections. And as a result, you have hundreds of deaths from these planes falling out of the sky so they can make more profit. But the CEO says he doesn't want the government to have a stake in ownership in the company. So we want the bailout, we want the money, but we don't want any strings attached. Naturally, people are responding by saying, we need to nationalize Boeing. Or you look at the airlines, same kind of situation. They're asking to be bailed out. A highly monopolized industry that abuses the public. Uh, It's been raking it in for years. They have increased their profits by billions just by increasing baggage fees, grinding down their workforce, nickel and diming their customers. You now have Ford Airlines that control 80% of flights. In 93 of the top 100 largest airports in the US, you have one or two companies that control a majority of the seats that are for sale. What have they done with all of their unprecedented profits in the last decade? Well, the top five airlines have spent 96% of their free cash flow on stock buybacks, which basically means inflating the cost of shares, delivering huge payouts to their owners, American Airlines alone spent $15 billion this way in the last six years. The CEO of that company makes 12 million a year. Delta CEO makes 15 million a year. United makes uh, 10 million a year. That's just in their take-home wages. Now they're asking for a bailout that's going to be almost the equivalent of all the country's airlines put together. Their CEOs wrote a, a joint letter to the government saying, basically threatening, if we don't get bailed out, we will be forced to take draconian measures against our workforce, which they are already starting to do. So you can understand why people are also looking at this situation and saying, we don't need to bail out the airlines. We need to nationalize them. You've also had on the other hand, some reformist commentators who have been making the case that nationalization isn't such a radical thing. And it's actually, they're saying it's a policy tool that the U S has used before that the U.S. actually has a long and rich history of nationalizing industry, particularly in wartime. And this is true. It's, It's actually an example that when the ruling class finds themselves up against the wall, when the stakes are that high and efficiency of production is a matter of life and death for them and for the survival of their system, of their rule, then they acknowledge that they can't rely on the chaos of their own system and the state is forced to step in. And that's exactly what we saw in both of the world wars. In World War I, US nationalized telecommunications, 50 radio stations, all the railroads in the country, which was owned by 400 companies at the time, arms manufacturers like Smith & Weston were nationalized, all of it only to be reprivatized immediately after the war with compensation. The telecommunications, all manufacturing, the railroads, all given back uh, with interest to their owners. In World War II, you saw even more extensive nationalization uh, across an even wider range of industries, oil refineries, even retail chains. One of the largest in the country at the time was the Montgomery Wards department stores and against the wishes of their CEO, they were nationalized. Although in many cases, the owners were only too happy to, to accept a very generous buyout and to basically take a break from running the, uh, the business. But the government nationalized large parts of the mining sector. Over 3,000 coal mines were nationalized. Over 1,000 railroad companies were nationalized. And towards the end of the war, the government was taking over an average of one plant uh, every week. So even after the war, you know, this, this continued. Under Truman, you had the nationalization of several more uh, railroads into the 40s and 50s. In many cases, these were responses to strike activity and you had a a powerful strike wave that interfered with the urgent needs of wartime production then the state would step in and either grant concessions or in most cases just violently crush the strike and get back to, to production. So if we look at this history concretely, yes, it's a long history of nationalization, but this is not an example of socialism or workers control by any means. On the contrary, this is an example of what you'd call state capitalism. This is the government. You know, the agencies that were set up to oversee these policies, the National War Labor Board and the Wartime Production Board, they put capitalists at the head of these agencies. The CEO of US Steel, the largest company in the country at the time, was put at the head of the War Production Board. And it was a way for the capitalist state to basically exercise a central control over its economy and to temporarily suspend some of these obstacles of the market, like price competition, uh, and give the capitalist state really a a free hand to deal with their workforce. That's not the kind of nationalization we are fighting for. Any socialist should be fighting for. A lot of governments are taking drastic measures to intervene that actually fall short of nationalization. Spain, for example, has temporarily uh, requisitioned, has taken control of the hospitals has allowed local government authorities to, to basically direct the, the activity of the hospital network, but it hasn't changed hands. It, it's still privately owned and will likely be compensated. In Italy, uh, you know, over the past decade, you've had tens of thousands of healthcare staff laid off. You've had a reduction of 70,000 hospital beds. And yes, it's a public system. But look at the way public healthcare systems are treated in capitalist governments due to austerity, due to health and budget cuts. Really, that's the reason Italy has been the European epicenter of this pandemic. It's because under capitalism, this is the way that uh, public health and other public services are treated. It's really a question of the nature of the state. And you can't have a planned economy under capitalism. The government is a machine of the capitalists. It's exclusively a vehicle for their interests. And that's why it's vacillating. It's bending over backwards to not disrupt business, to not challenge private property. And if they did decide that for the survival of their system, they, they needed to take a more aggressive policy and, and cross that line, you can be sure that it would be temporary. It would be compensated generously for the capitalists. And the working class would be forced to pay the price. The fundamental solution is the establishment of a workers government that would act as a vehicle for the interests of the working class and for the democratic control of the working class which is the vast majority of the population over the economy. The first urgent step towards making this a reality for workers in the U.S. is for the working class to have its own party, a class independent mass party For the tens of millions of of workers in the US who reject capitalism, who want to fight against the system, there's actually a sentiment against the two-party system that is higher now, that is more intense now than ever before. People don't feel represented by these parties of the billionaires, and that goes for both of them. Over 60% of Americans reject both parties. You look at the momentum that the Sanders campaign has had in the last two election cycles, and Basically, you see a massive missed opportunity. If Sanders had launched off in an independent direction, rather than playing ball with the Democrats, rather than succumbing to their manipulation, their maneuvers, following their rules, if he had launched off and said, we are going to continue this fight against the billionaires, we're going to form a new party for the 99%, imagine where that would leave us today. A party like that, an independent party uh, for the working class, could sweep the country at a time like this when millions of people are looking for fundamental change. That's why we fight for a mass socialist party, a party of the working class, and for the labor movement to break with the two-party system. A lot of people point out that this won't be easy, that the rules of the electoral system in the US are stacked against us. That may be true, it's not going to be easy, but it's the only way forward. That's something that the socialist movement in the US needs to understand. We should draw a balance sheet of where we are now. If we had a mass party, we could be taking off. We could be playing a big role. And uh, instead, we see where things are at. We argue that there's never been a better time to break with the two-party system. That it's undermined like never before. Really, you have this dam waiting to burst. And sooner or later, you're going to have this pressure of the masses looking to find its, its own expression in a new political formation. So when people say, we're at war, you know, that's the metaphor that everyone's using, all the world's leaders are using. We agree, we are at war. This is a class war. And it's not just a war between workers and capitalists. It's a war between human needs and the needs of profit. That's the contradiction of our time, is between conscious human planning and rational control of the productive forces, the productive potential of society, on the one hand, and the unconscious, unplannable, blind laws of the market on the other. The capitalists are in a blind alley. They can't see into the future. They can't see any future for themselves. They can't plan for the future. They can't see past the the next week. And when this pandemic is finally behind us, after all the unnecessary suffering, all the the loss of hundreds of thousands of lives, as long as the capitalists are still in command of, of this society, Humanity will find itself threatened and our very existence on the on the planet will be threatened More than ever before humanity needs to respond to the crisis all the crises it's facing in a way that puts human needs before everything else and allows us to take a conscious democratic control of our productive forces harness them rationally in a planned way and we're convinced that millions of people in the US and around the world given the opportunity would agree with our program if they could hear it. You know, consider the state of the world before the outbreak of COVID-19. A quarter of the countries on the surface of this planet had unprecedented civil unrest, mass mobilizations, massive strike waves, revolutionary situations that completely suspended the power of one government after another. You see how all of this accumulated discontent that built up over decades finally ignited. And I think that in the U.S., lot of socialists probably watch these events from afar wondering when this kind of event would come to the U.S. when will that scale of class struggle arrive here and I think that what we've seen in the past weeks is that that gap between the long-gone normality of the past and a revolutionary situation in the U.S. that gap has shrunk down dramatically you know one of the things we do at socialist revolution we study revolutions we study The class struggle we study these histories not as an academic exercise but in order to understand the way that consciousness changes in the midst of massive events it changes in a sudden in an explosive way and one of the patterns that emerges is that revolutions are preceded precisely by crises by wars by a fundamental disruption in everyday life that makes the normal routine impossible You have events that are putting millions of people, billions even, onto the same page, synchronizing their immediate concerns all around the planet. This is happening now in a way that has no precedent. So there is a lot of urgency to propose a solution. Millions of people already agree in the US that capitalism must be overthrown. But what we need to do is prepare seriously for a revolutionary upheaval in the US and we would appeal to socialists across the country to ask themselves if a revolution were to break out in the US, if and when it happens, like it has in so many other countries, what would need to be in place for that revolution to succeed? If a new mass party emerges, if and when we we finally have the emergence of of a mass party of the working class, how can socialists prepare to arm such a movement with a clear program of action? We need to build the kind of organization that can sink roots in the working class and systematically put forward a revolutionary program for a mass party of the working class to come to power, to form a workers' government, to nationalize the key industries under workers' control in order to plan the economy and take real action against this pandemic, against the destruction of the environment and to transform life on this planet for billions of people. We believe that's the kind of period we're living in. And if you agree, then join us in the fight for socialist revolution in our lifetime.